Good morning. Welcome to the Leewood campus. Uh, I'm Tom Nelson. We're glad you're here today. I hope uh, you've had a good spring break or are coming back from spring break or someone said the first service they had a stay vacation, right? A staycation? Um, that's a pretty fun thing. So again, welcome. We're really glad you're here. Anybody here this morning a fan of ABC's hit show, The Bachelor? Anybody have been watching that? I was stunned. Uh, it's not my favorite show. It comes after Castle, you know, so... <laughs> Uh, but uh, it, it hit this amazing Nielsen rating on, on Twitter. I, I don't know how to understand how that works, but it was like the finale of this was amazing. And if you know the story, the plot line of The Bachelor um, is this is Chris, a uh, guy that, uh, well, at least this episode or this year is a farmer from Iowa, whatever the ba- latest Bachelor is, and uh, looking for his true love. And so the storyline always goes where he has all these beautiful ladies and he ends up uh, pop on the big question, you know, going to a destination wedding that very few of us could ever afford or imagine. And uh, the end of the series goes where they are, you know, on marital, blissful shore forever in happiness. It's uh, amazing to me because our culture often has sort of said goodbye to marriage, that marriage is sort of yuck, you know. Uh, marriage is having a hard sell today. But on the other side, there's this amazing paradox. Have you noticed that? that there's something why this show is such a hit, that there's something enticing to the human heart for a, quote, reality show, I love this, uh, that confirms this enticing appeal that there's marital bliss and happiness on marital shores. So somehow, not only our culture, uh, but the church also has, let me just say, kind of a, well, a very elevated, stratospheric kind of view of marriage, both the church and the culture. Uh, I've noticed in my library that I have very few books on singleness. I have just tons of books on marriage. Everybody gives me books on marriage. I guess they need to know, you know, hey, Tom, you need to learn how to do this. Um, But I have tons of books on marriage. I have no books on on singleness. Um, And uh, some of the Christian books I have on marriage uh, begin like this. I pulled out two of them just to kind of give you a flavor. And these are Christian authors, well-intended, but this is how the first one starts. Love and marriage. The songwriter says they go together like a horse in a carriage. Marriage, for many, this author writes, becomes the dream of a lifetime. And when I read that, I wonder, do you wonder? (laughs) I mean, do you wonder, like, what happens when the dream of the lifetime never materializes? Another uh, marriage book, Christian marriage book on my shelf, begins this way. Marriage is living with glory. I'm like, what? It's this is let's it's living with embodied revelation, with a daily unveiling of the raveling of the rapturous mystery of love. That's how I put it. Do you ever find yourself wondering, you know, what happens when the mystery of rapturous love, poof, goes like that in marriage? All you married folks are nodding your head and singles, just trust me, okay? <laughs> Especially younger folks. Right here. Now, while it's, believe, it's really important to uphold marriage, don't get me wrong, the view of marriage is important that we hold it highly and esteem it highly, but many of us, I think, have put marriage on a high pedestal. And is it possible that our focus on the family has morphed into the idolatry of the family? 
Could it be that one of the unintended consequences of elevating marriage so high is we have devalued singleness? Do we need to rethink singleness? When we refer to single or a single person, where does our minds usually go? It's you young adults who are, right, not yet married, waiting for the moment of blissful happiness. Now, let me say, young adults, you're very important to us, and you're important. But singleness must not be seen merely as a particular stage in life, usually younger, but rather a common experience throughout life. All of us here today, younger or older, are single or have been single or will be single one day. And many of our friends and family members and classmates and colleagues and neighbors are single. I mean, the best statistics I can find are somewhere currently around 44% of all adults in the United States are single. So how does our Christian faith speak to them? How does it speak to us? Now, maybe you're here today and you're newly single. Perhaps you are feeling the stinging pain of a spouse who has just left you or the gnawing loneliness of a spouse that has passed away. Maybe, as I hear from many of my single friends, you are tired of slogging through bad dates, internet dating sites that you've been trying to get to work for you for the past decade. Maybe you're here with a tender heart, you're fresh from the sting of disappointment, a failed relationship, what feels like God has betrayed you or is not providing for you. Maybe it's your choice you're single, maybe it's not. Maybe it's your fault, maybe it's not. Maybe you know exactly why you're single or you never ever will, this side of heaven. But in the providence of God, you're here today and you're single. And you need to hear what Paul says to you. In fact, all of us, single or married, need to hear what Paul says. So if you haven't already turned there, I'd like you to turn to our text this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's set the context. If you're visiting this morning or you're new to Christ's community, we have been walking through Paul's inspired letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Up to this point, Paul has labored with great literary beauty and focus and intensity to tell the Corinthians believers, let's grow up, guys and gals, let's grow up. Let's mature in our faith. Let's Let's put away spiritual pride. Let's understand sexual ethics. Let's understand the importance of our vocational calling. And now at the end of chapter 7, as he builds to this crescendo in chapter 7, he addresses marital status. Last week, in verses 17 to 24, Pastor Andrew highlighted for us that our primary calling is not the work we do, as vitally as important as that is, but rather we are called first to be a bondservant of Christ. Wherever we are, whatever we're called to do. So Paul, in his brilliant mastery of literary structure and flow, follows the logical thread of his argument and builds it with a coherence. He moves from these items of calling to our marital status in the end of chapter 7. And his thread of thought is around this idea, that what matters most is not our marital status, but our master status. It's not so much just what our marital status is, 
Paul's focus in this text is who our master is. And he gives us two essential truths, whether we are single or married or wherever we are, that we are to tuck into our hearts and minds as we navigate through life. Let me highlight those truths because Paul probes them in a flow of this text. The first one, if you're taking notes, is marriage is good, but Jesus is the ultimate good. Marriage is good, but Jesus is the ultimate good. Second thing we're going to see is that singleness is a gift, but Jesus is the ultimate gift. Let's press into the first truth. Look at me at verses 25 to 26. I want to reread this again and listen to it carefully. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now let me just out with this right away, that whether you're newer to the Bible or you've been in the Bible a long time, this particular text in the original language is one of the most difficult texts to interpret. This is why if you have different translations, you see all kinds of different words and things floating around. And I don't have time this morning to unpack the details of that. But I want you to know words like betrothed are not easy to get started in this text. Uh, maybe your translation has this, maybe it doesn't. But betrothal is an old English word and it captures the Greek word, which literally is the word we get in English virgin from. Betrothal is kind of like being engaged on steroids in that culture. This word often is, in English, describes someone who's never had sex. But the focus of this word in the biblical text is really a broader idea. It's someone who is single. Now notice also, this can be confusing, Paul says he has no direct command from the Lord. The word Lord is going to be very important in this text, so I want you to tuck it in your mind. It's the Greek word kurios, and it's a direct reference to Jesus. So Paul says, I do not have a direct command from Jesus. What does that mean? Is that lessening his authority here? No. What he is saying is that Jesus, who lived a single celibate life while he was the incarnate son of God on earth, did not give a specific teaching on singleness. Paul, who received revelation from Christ, says, Jesus didn't give this teaching, but I'm going to, and I have authority as an apostle. So I want you just to understand the importance of this text and what, what's going on there. Now, another phrase that is just really hard, okay, right off the blocks, I'm just being very transparent with you, is verse 26. Translators have a hard time not only translating, but what on earth does Paul mean? The present distress. We don't know exactly what that means. I mean, it's like, you know, reading a letter between two people, we don't know the context. But we do know the framing. We don't know specifically what it is, but we do know what Paul is doing in the broader frame. Paul is placing the first century moment he is writing in within the broad sweep of God's unfolding story. Now let's remember, as we remember often and we need to remember in Corinthians, is that Paul is a brilliant rabbi, a Jewish rabbi. His pastoral words are framed within a Jewish cultural context that strongly affirmed marriage. Paul most likely had been married. His wife probably died. We're not exactly sure. But marriage was a big deal in the Jewish culture. And it was informed by the broader Old Testament narrative beginning in Genesis. So Paul understands this flow of thought from Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, the first book in the Bible, in original creation. Now Genesis 2 strongly affirmed the importance of marriage and God's design for human flourishing. Paul also knew, which we often miss, at least in the American church, is that the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 is a lot more about, uh, more than just getting married and having babies. It's often how that's taught. 
Paul knew, and we must see, that singleness was not a result of Genesis 3 and the fall into sin, and it was appointing to God's original architecture. Singleness is not a part of the fall into sin. Paul knew that. Otherwise, his words are very incoherent here. Paul understood the unfolding of God's story in the Bible as bookended with two weddings. Genesis 2 and the wedding of Adam and Eve, and then it looked forward to the end of the Bible in Revelation 19 that is yet future. In the grand wedding, John calls the marriage supper of the Lamb of Jesus when he marries his church in Revelation 19. So in many ways, the grand story of the Bible is really a story bookended with two weddings. And then we can say Jesus graces a wedding in Cana in between as creator, redeemer, and the ultimate savior. So weddings frame the story, and Paul knows that. From before creation, God viewed marriage as good. Paul is saying that. But he said even before creation, God viewed Jesus as the ultimate good, even before sin and death entered the world. In other words, marital status, hear me very carefully, for Paul and for the biblical text, was never designed to be the basis of your human value, your dignity, or your identity. Jesus, as both creator and redeemer, was and is and always will be the basis for that. This is why Paul, in verses 27 to 31, walks this delicate literary tightrope. You feel it. It's that he neither elevates marriage or diminishes marriage, nor does he elevate singleness or diminish it. Paul basically says, as God's redemptive story unfolds, we now find ourselves in the time between, between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And he says, in this time between, your marital status is not something to be sweating about. Can I use that language? Whether it's single or married, you are free to be single or free to be married. If you are single, be content. If you are married, be content. And his main point of the flow of the argument is this. History's on the march under God's sovereign hand, and your family of origin is not your family of destiny. He is saying that the good life that we all so deeply long for is not found in being married or being single, but in knowing and following Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I was reminded of this this week in a very powerful way. I had the joy of visiting my friend Bill. And uh, Bill is uh, one of the most remarkable and joyful Christians I have ever met. His life story is filled with many achievements. But what's most remarkable to me is Bill's love for Jesus and joy. Bill's story begins the first 26 years of his life He was single. Then he met this, as he describes her, this dashing brunette named Audrey. They were married for 37 years. And then my aunt Audrey passed away. For the last 27 years, my Uncle Bill, at age 90, now has lived a single life. He's vibrant. And he said this to me recently in an email. (laughs) He said, God has been pleased to bless me with 37 years of happy marriedness. And, get this, can you imagine? 53 years of unmarriedness. See, this is what Paul is saying. 
It's not ultimately about your marital status. It's about your master status. And he presses into this in the second truth in verses 32 through 35. He wants us to know that singleness is a gift, but Jesus is the ultimate gift. Many of us are thinking if we're single, whoa, that may be shocking to us. You know, if that's a gift, God, you can have it back. But Paul affirms singleness. And he describes it in his own life earlier in verse 7, if you have your Bible open, scoop back to that, as a gift from God. He says in verse 7, I wish that all were as myself am. That means being single. But then he says, but each has his own gift. Literally the word is charisma. From God, one of one kind and one of the other. He uses the word that he will use later in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, translated gift, that describes Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts given to the church. Gifts like giving, faith, serving, and healing. And he brings singleness into that gift mix for the good of others. He never says marriage is a spiritual gift. Paul believed marriage was a gift and a good thing. But he says singleness is a spiritual gift. Paul saw celibacy not merely as a gift from God, but people who are celibate as a gift from God. A gift like other spiritual gifts given to enrich others and build up the church. Now some of you, as you hear this, you're struggling, right? If you're single. You know, it's like, yuck. I remember um, I was single at the age of 26, which is, I guess, today's average marriage age is 28 or something like that. But I remember some of those years before I was married to Liz thinking, you know, God, I don't want this gift. And if I would have been able to tweet God then, it would have kind of gone like this, hashtag, if singleness is a gift, God, what's the return policy? That's kind of where I was. But that's not where Paul is. He says, basically, there are upsides and downsides to singleness and marriage. And if you look carefully at the text, Paul seems to be tilting his hand a bit towards singleness, not marriage. Look at verses 32 through 35. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please him. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided, and the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things. How to please her husband. I say this, Paul writes, for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint. That word means like a noose on a rope. That's where it comes from from ancient Greece. Like squeezed. But to promote good order and to secure your what? Undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul is saying in this brilliant braiding of literary structure and contrast that you are free in Christ to be married or to remain single. He says, okay, just pastorally, just keep in mind there are upsides and downsides. And his focus is what are the upsides of singleness? Notice in the text in verses 32 to 35, he says basically singleness does not have as many divided interests as well as one less thing to be anxious or worried about in life. He's just pointing out a very pragmatic reality. It's not a value statement. Paul is not saying the single life is an easier life, no. But he is saying by its very nature, it can be more singularly focused. Just a pragmatic reality. 
So what is the downside of marriage? The picture in the text is that marriage pulls you in two directions. There is an additional reality in faithfulness in marriage and being a good spouse that is a competing interest for your time, talent, affections, and your treasure. That's his point. One of the writers here that's outstanding uh, is Eve Tushnet, and she is from the Catholic tradition, but she has such insight on the unmarried vocation. She writes, listen carefully. She says, the path or way of life in which God is calling us to pour out our love for him and for other particular human beings is the path of vocation. Vocation or calling is always a positive act of love, not a refraining from action. So celibacy, she writes, in and of itself, isn't a vocation in this sense, although it can be a discipline that frees one up for one's vocation. This is what Paul is saying. He says, what's, what's really important to consider? Notice how he builds to the literary crescendo in this section to verse 35. Do you see the bottom line he leads to? He says, the bottom line, whether you're married or unmarried, is your devotion to the Lord. Is it undivided? That's his point. See, he gets to the point, it is our master status, not our marital status that matters most. And yet, most of us, especially when we're younger, and I've been there, we're wondering who we're going to marry and what's it going to be like when we plan our weddings, right? I mean, it's like, ladies, I mean, when you're younger, it's like you're thinking about that. Like, who am I going to marry? Am I going to get married? When am I going to get married? Or should I stay single? But Paul is saying the first and foremost question is not the question, should I get married or be single? Or who the, you know, knight and uh, white knight and shining armor kind of person is. It is the question, who is Lord of my life? The big question of life is not who will my mate be, but who will my master be? This is where Paul has this, and I want to, you to see why. Paul repeats four times this word kurios or Lord in these verses. Do you see that? It's like, Paul, I get it, I get it. Why? Because the word Lord means owner. And Paul has already said in chapter 6, and then now in chapter 7, you are not your own. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're following him, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. So Paul says, who is the owner of your life? Marriage is good, yes. But Jesus is the ultimate good. Singleness is a gift, yes. But Jesus is the ultimate gift. And what Paul is saying is that the good life is ultimately found not in marriage or singleness, but in Jesus himself. That's the big idea of this very difficult text to interpret. We just don't see singleness as we should. Most of us. There's just a lot of fog hanging over our minds and hearts. So how do we begin to clear it? Let me suggest three truths. You might want to write these down, think about them, that I find very important here. First, the first clarifying truth is a life without sex is not a life without love. Earlier in his letter, Paul has affirmed to the Corinthians a Christian sexual ethic with tinging clarity. Sex is reserved for a man and a woman in covenant marriage. So by definition, whether you're younger or older, male or female, a single life at whatever age is to be a celibate one. Now, for many of us in our cultural context, that may seem like an untenable possibility. <laughs> we often see singleness as a curse, as a part of 
Genesis 3 and our fall into sin, but that is not true. What is an evidence of the curse of Genesis 3 is not singleness, it's our idolatry of sex, both in the culture and in the church. Sex is a dominant idol. It is an idol that entices to believe, friends, that sex is the end-all, the be-all of human life. And it's a mirage that will set you up to despair. Celibacy, properly understood, is not the absence of sexual desire. It is the presence of self-denial. It is a self-denial that looks to Jesus to satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart while embracing others with sacrificial love, devoted friendship, and joyful service. Wesley Hill, who is a remarkable Christian single, professor who experiences same-sex attraction, is choosing celibacy in obedience to Christ and the Holy Scriptures. And he encourages nurturing spiritual friendships in the church. And he writes this, and listen carefully. Celibacy and marriage are complementary vocations or callings, because they proclaim that sexual intimacy cannot be an audition. Both celibates and married persons respect the structure of covenant love and avoid trial. That's rent it before you own it, okay? Or conditional intimacy. Both celibacy and marriage reject sex in the context of what Pope Francis has called the throwaway culture of our time. Both celibacy and marriage reject sexual relationships premised merely, merely on satisfying erotic desire. Now, Wesley Hill is rightly reminding all of us that a true life of love is not found just in the sexual intimacy of marriage, but in the spiritual friendships within the body of Christ. A life without sex is not a life without love. Secondly, a life without marriage is not a life without a family. You know, when I visit with single friends of mine, they often tell me they feel like a third wheel. They don't feel like they fit in anywhere. Maybe a wedding reception where he's taking pictures, they don't know where to go. Maybe dinner with a group at restaurants where everyone's couples except for them. Maybe a family reunion or a social setting of some kind just geared for couples. And most of us who are married, I've been married 32 years wonderfully to my bride, Liz. We don't think that way after being married a while. We just are insensitive. It may be in church. One single at Christ's community said to me, you know, one of the most difficult times for me being single is during the greeting time when I'm around a bunch of families and I feel like the odd person out. Yet let me say it as best as I can. Each one of us here was created with another family in mind. Not just our nuclear family for a moment in time, but God's big family forever. It's not incidental that a primary metaphor in Scripture of the church is a family. The church is to be a foretaste, an appetizer of the Edenic community that was once ravished and vandalized by sin so long ago. The local church, Christ's community, is to be a tangible appetizer of what is coming in the new heavens and new earth that await all who trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior, all who have by his grace been adopted into his family forever with security and identity and worth. Now, whether we are adopted or live with our biological parents, whether we come from really broken, messed up families or 
seemingly a great family or whether we are married with kids or no kids, whether we are single and want to be married, whether we are married and divorced and have had it with marriage, whether we are widowed, whether we are young or old or in between, the local church is our new family. And Paul is trying to help hammer that truth into our life. Christ community, since our inception, we've had a mission statement, and it's not accidental, incidental, it is integral to who we are. We said 26 years ago, our first phrase of our mission statement is to what? To be a caring family of multiplying disciples, influencing our community and world for Jesus Christ. Notice how the mission statement begins. It's to be a caring family, to be his church. So singles particularly, forgive me for my insensitivity. Forgive us when we who are married have treated you as second-class citizens. Forgive us for marginalizing you at times. Forgive us for using condescending or deferential language we have used. Forgive us for not including you more in our social circles and inviting you into our homes and our family life. Forgive us for not celebrating your amazing gifts to God, to the world, and to the church. Maybe you're married this morning. Let me give you three quick steps to think about. If you're married, first check your attitude about singles. In the church, singles are often misunderstood. They're often marginalized. Singles are often overlooked for leadership positions or viewed through a lens of spiritual immaturity. This has got to change. How do you view single adults? What's your attitude? What's my attitude? Secondly, realize that singleness is complex. Many of us, if we've been married relatively early in life, or we've continued to be married for a while, we just have lost touch with what it's like to walk in the shoes of a single. And we need more humility and teachability. We need to step out of our married insularity and get to know singles and learn from them. When's the last time you have taken time to listen to a person, a single person, share their heart, their dreams and struggles? When have you got on their team? When are you praying for them? What are they praying for? What is their life about? Third, invite singles to be part of your family. I'm so grateful my bride Liz models this often at Easter and other times just to encourage other people who might not have a place to go or feel outside the realm of the married kind of context to be a part of our Easter dinner. And what about March Madness? I know we have a big game, right? I know a lot of singles that love basketball. When's the last time you invited a single friend to join you at March Madness? So we often miss that. If you're single this morning, let me chat a little bit just with you. First of all, hear me carefully. At whatever age, you are a great gift to the church. Here at Christ Community, you matter. You matter. Help us to know how better to affirm you at whatever age you are, to acknowledge your contributions, to provide opportunities for your leadership and service, and to celebrate your singleness. Secondly, singles find a place of service. You have amazing gifts. You make Christ's community so much more beautiful and effective. So give passionately, wholeheartedly of your time, talent, and treasures. Without your wholehearted uh, commitment and intercessory prayer, we are all impoverished. Third, if you are a single person, take the initiative to get involved in our church family. Join a community group, get to know a smaller group of friends within the church. Eve Tushnet, again, writes so well here. She talks about the importance of spiritual friendship. 
And she says this, the rewards of a friendship that become kinship accrue for single people, but also for their married friends. And she writes in her wonderful book, listen to this, knitting single people more closely into families is one of the biggest things the Christian church could do to change culture. And I say hardly amen. Amen. We have to make some adjustments in attitude and action and be the church God has called us to be, regardless of our marital status. The third clarifying truth here is a life of singleness is not a life without fulfillment. A life of singleness is not a life without great fulfillment. Viktor Frankl, the great and brilliant Swiss psychiatrist, and I think one of the finest books ever written in this dimension, Man's Search for Meaning, tells us that the two streams of meaning in our life are close friendships and work, what we do. And singles, embrace both with passion. Embrace both with passion. Close friendships and hard work. Love your neighbor through your work. Pour your life out for God's glory and sacrifice and obedience in simple and quiet ways every day in the unseen spaces of life before your audience of one. Yet all of us, single or married, we need to remember something really important. And Paul is hinting at this. He's hinting at this. There's an echo across the scriptures that begin to build here. And that is that whether you are single or married, there are longings and desires in your heart and mind that will never fully be satisfied in another person. They'll only be satisfied in the home we were originally created for before sin entered the world. The new heavens and new earth. See, singles... Marrieds, wherever you are, ultimately we're not aching for more sex. We're not aching for a spouse. We're not aching for more money or more time. We're aching for home. We long for home. Henry Nouwen, who is a brilliant writer, a writer that I think I've read just about everything he's written, says it well, and I want you to listen carefully. As a single adult, Henry writes these words. We ignore what we already know with a deep-seated intuitive knowledge that no love or friendship, no intimate embrace or tender kiss, no community, no commune, no collective, no man or woman will be ever able to satisfy our desire to be released from our lonely condition. This truth is so disconcerting and painful that we are more prone to play games with our fantasies and to face the truth of our existence. Thus, we keep hoping that one day we will find the man who really understands our experiences, the woman who will bring peace to our restless soul, the job where we can fulfill our potentials, the book which will explain everything, and the place where we can feel at home. Friends, being single is an opportunity, not an obstacle. It is not marriage or singleness that is the ultimate good or the ultimate gift. It is knowing Jesus. This is what Paul tells us here. In Christ, we have been given a new identity and a new family. It is not our marital status that matters most. It is our master status that matters most. 
Let's pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed this morning, let me just encourage you, wherever you are in your life, young, single, middle-aged, single, older, single, married, a life well-lived doesn't just happen. A single life well-lived doesn't just happen. It flows out of an apprenticeship with Jesus. The most important question this morning you can ask is not whether you are yoked to another person, it's whether you're yoked to Jesus. And Jesus invites you to come to him. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Will you find rest? The life God has for you in Christ. He is the greatest lover of your soul. The one who's preparing a place for you the one who welcomes you home. Amen.